Dear Lord, we thank you for uh, this wonderful book of prophecy. We thank you for the time that you've given us to go through it so slowly and uh, little by little. It's uh, good to get the uh, big overview, but it's also good to spend some time in the details. So we thank you for that uh, opportunity that you've provided us. Pray for understanding in tonight's lesson. We pray that uh, all that is uh, discussed here tonight is to your glory. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. So Revelation 17 verses 7 through 14 tonight, which is the campaign of the, the beast and his associate kings. We get to see it in a little bit closer view. Uh, but it starts with the angel telling John that he's going to explain the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. So last time we had a different mystery. There's two mysteries in this chapter. One is the mystery of the woman, and that is her name, which is Mystery Babylon, or um, Babylon the Great. And the mystery about that is that she's the mother of all harlots. So this was the originator of all false religion. So now we have another mystery, and the angel's about to explain it to us, and that is that this mother of harlots, this false religion, rides on the head of successive governments that have ruled over the earth. <clears throat> so he starts with the beast, then he's going to tell us about the heads. Then next week, we're not going to look at it this week, he gets to the woman and shows how there's, um, there's somewhat of a civil war within this, where the political powers are going to overthrow the religious system in order to enthrone the beast as their uh, messiah. So they'll get rid of the false religions that have built up or that um, this has ridden on top of this political environment. And then they'll put up the beast as their king, as their messiah king. But here it says the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss. Now, this is pretty much a direct parody of what we have read so far about Jesus in the book of Revelation. And that's one of these primary themes in Revelation is how Satan's uh, master plan is really just a counterfeit of God's master plan. He's trying to mimic what God is doing and so trick the people of the world into accepting the false Christ as the Christ. So we have that in Revelation 4, 8, where the angels are singing and it's for the, uh, the four living creatures. And they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. We see it in John's introduction to the book as well. And I think uh, John, these words are probably still ringing in John's ear as he goes down to write the introduction. He's gotten to the end of these revelations. And here he wants to set out right from the beginning that it was Jesus Christ who was and who is and who was to come. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. At the end of chapter one, that's described for us in a bit more detail. Jesus was, is, and is to come is a little different than the false Christs. Because here he says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys to death and of Hades. And then this becomes the promise as well to those persecuted in Smyrna. 
that uh, because he is the one who lives, so they will live even if they die. But uh, the Antichrist, the false Christ, if you remember, has also mimicked this resurrection. Back in chapter 13, we saw that this beast that came out of the earth, one of his heads was slain, and then that fatal wound was healed. We went into the Greek a bit here and saw that it's uh, most likely referring to an actual death wound and an actual resurrection, though it's not the resurrection to the same kind of life. It's a satanic resurrection and indwelling by Satan. And so then the whole world that sees this resurrection of the false Christ is going to follow after the beast. So this is going to be one of those things that convinces the whole world. This superhuman is some sort of a Christ, some sort of a God. And so we also see this back in 2 Thessalonians, Paul warning the church of Thessalonica, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the departure comes first. And then the man of lawlessness will be revealed, the son of destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And this is going to be one of the conflicts that leads to the overthrow of the woman Babylon, because Satan is going to want to put his king in the throne of Jerusalem, but he is here tethered to Babylon. Babylon is where their world government has grown out of. It's where the religious system is centralized. And so in Armageddon, when false Christ brings his armies to the Valley of Armageddon, and they're about to push into Jerusalem, that's probably their goal, is to take over Jerusalem and install not the king of God's choosing, but the king of Satan's choosing, over the kingdom that would be over the whole world. Because this fight, just like Revelation 12 tells us, this battle goes all the way back to the beginning with the woman in the garden. God told, excuse me, God told Adam to rule over the whole earth. And he put Adam there to do that and Adam failed. But his, uh, his ultimate plan is to put Jesus Christ, the perfect uh, man, the ultimate Adam over this whole earth. So Satan is mimicking God's plan. If God built this earth for a man to roll over it, Satan wants to be the one to install that man over it. <clears throat> but we see that his uh, going, or his, uh, his was, his is not, and his about to come, is that he goes out of the abyss. So he's not coming to life. He is being demonically uh, animated. And his end is not as the king of this earth. It's not to merge his throne with God's, but it's to go into destruction. Back in Revelation eleven seven, when we were dealing with the uh, two prophets that will be prophesying against this campaign of the Antichrist, it says that when they, that's the uh, two prophets, when they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street, the great city, which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Now, I think this was intentional that John juxtaposes these two ideas. The Lord was crucified here and he was resurrected here. 
We also have the Antichrist killed here, resurrected here. But we also have the two prophets killed here and resurrected here. Now these go back to the, um, the promise of the sign of Jonah. When Israel rejected Jesus as their king, rejected the messianic kingdom along with it, Jesus told them, you get no more signs, no more signs to show you that I am the Messiah, except for one thing. He's going to show them the sign of Jonah, the prophet, because Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster. And so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the resurrection is going to be the one final sign to Israel to show them who their king is. So Jesus gives them one chance before his own. That's the resurrection of Lazarus. He shows them that Jesus is able to raise someone from the dead three days after uh, death, which in the Jewish reckoning was when the soul actually left the body three days after death. So the resurrection, for example, of the uh, only child of the widow, uh, that resurrection was the same day that the boy died. The resurrection of the centurion's daughter was the same day that she died. So those were not signs of Jonah. But with Lazarus, it was a unique resurrection because it, uh, it mimicked Jesus' own resurrection. But it was by the power of God through Jesus. So then they, many people did see that and come to believe, but it was still not all of Israel. Uh, the kingdom was no longer being offered at that point anyways, but many individuals did receive Jesus as their Messiah because of that resurrection. The same thing happened when Jesus himself was resurrected after three days. Many more people came to believe. They received their individual salvation, their individual entrance into the promised kingdom uh, in the future. Um, but again, not all of Israel would come to believe because of these signs, but there's still that future promise of this sign to Israel. And this is, again, the only sign that Jesus is going to offer them. And it will be at the midpoint of the tribulation period when these two witnesses are put to death in the city. And then after three days, they're resurrected. This is going to be a sign of which, um, or that these two witnesses, their ministry is pointing towards that Messiah. But at the same time, and just immediately before that, the Antichrist is going to have performed his own resurrection. And so be trying to claim his right as the king of Israel here. And part of doing that is when he comes up out of the grave, now indwelled by Satan, he's going to kill these two witnesses. So in trying to confirm his own power, he ends up doing God's will and showing Israel the last sign of Israel's true Messiah, which then is going to lead to a mass exodus from Israel. Because, I don't have it here, but in Matthew 24, around verse 25, it says that when you see the abomination of desolation entering into the temple, as was warned by Daniel, that's Daniel 9, 27, that when this man who makes a firm covenant with many in Israel, uh, when he tries to make alterations to the law, to the times, to get out of Israel. And many in Israel are going to do that. They're going to get out. And so in trying to claim his place over the throne of Jerusalem, he's actually going to uh, he's actually going to cause much of Israel to depart from Israel and uh, not follow him.
but it also says like here, he goes uh, out of the abyss, he's indwelled by Satan, and he goes to destruction. His end is not to rule over Jerusalem, but he will be thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. So even from the introduction of him, or his uh, introduction, you see that his end is not as he sees it, it's as God has ordained it. <clears throat> All right. In verse 8, uh, or actually the second part of verse 8 here, it says that those who dwell on earth, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, they will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. So there's a bit of a textual difficulty in this um, verse. It's a pretty hard verse to translate from the Greek. And the main issue is that um, that relative pronoun whose, trying to identify what exactly that correlates to, what's the, what is it referring to? Who is the who? Uh, this whose is plural and name is singular. And those who dwell on the earth is also plural. So it seems that it's referring back to those who, but the issue is that name is singular. So if the people who dwell on the earth are multiple, why is the name singular? Some people have uh, pulled this apart and tried to identify the beast as the name that's not written in the book of life. Uh, and that could be, it could have something to do with his resurrection. Uh, it could be to do with him being called uh, the uh, son of perdition in the same way that Judas was the son of perdition. Judas and the Antichrist are the only two in scripture ever said to be personally indwelled by Satan. Um, so that could have some merit. There are some excellent Bible teachers who um, teach that. Yeah. Did you explain the significance by the numbering, the one through five? <clears throat> oh, I didn't. Uh, the numbering, am I missing a couple? No, I'm not. Uh, the numbering are how they actually appear in the Greek text, which phrase appears first. Uh, so the pink here, uh, down at the bottom, this is actually the very first phrase in the Greek. It says that they will be astonished when they see the beast, those who dwell on the earth, which is pretty common in Greek to put mm -hmm. the verb before the subject in a phrase. It kind of draws the emphasis towards the beginning. In English, we have end emphasis. In Greek, they have front emphasis. So whatever comes first, is usually the main idea, and then they dangle their other ideas. We save the main idea for the very end to pack a punch. Um, Greek does it the opposite way. So that's possibly why this translator has moved the, the front matter to the end to kind of pack that same punch. But it's dislocated here from its subject. Those who dwell on the earth. And then it says whose, but name doesn't come until after um, this has not been written in the book of life. So what I did here is I rearranged it so that it's a bit more in line with, with how it should uh, or how it would read in the Greek. So it's those dwelling on the earth will be astonished whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. So you can see it, it's not as natural English when you do it this way, um, but it does put things in their order so you can kind of see how the Greek thought might be happening doesn't really solve the problem, though, of whose name. 
because again, this name is singular. So there's really two options here. Um, it could be referring to the beast. His name might be the name that's not written in the book of life. Um, and that could be to do with his destiny as the son of perdition. Um, but some use this text as if it's a slam dunk for uh, not just predestination, but pre-choice, pre-selection of a select group of people to be saved and say that only some are written in the book of life from the foundations of the earth and others are born not having their names in the book of life and then they never had a chance to be saved. Um, you can't use a text like this that has so many textual difficulties in it to prove full, uh, full bore such a controversial doctrine that doesn't have support elsewhere. Um, but uh, that being said, I am not convinced by the, uh, the name referring to the beast's name because the same thing happens here in Revelation 13, 8, when it's very clear that he is talking about everyone's name. It says, everyone whose name has not been written in the or from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who has been slain. This is also a plural whose with a, uh, a plural everyone. Actually, it's a singular, but with a um, plural idea and a plural whose. And then name is in the singular. But this obviously doesn't refer back to a beast. This refers to the people whose names are not written in the book of life. So I think when you put these two verses together, you see that it's possibly just a repeat phrase. Um, there's also something called the law of attraction in uh, Greek grammar, which means that the grammatical case or the grammatical number might not agree perfectly, but it sounds like it agrees when it's read out perhaps in the native tongue, if something singular is put next to something plural, it might attract the plurality of that. Or if it's a neuter is, or not a neuter, if an accusative is put next to an accusative, even if it should be a dative or something, it might attract that accusative case. Um, so that happens sometimes in Greek. We probably do it in English as well. If you just listen to a native speaker speak, their uh, grammar is actually a lot worse than a foreign speaker who comes and speaks English, but you don't catch a native speaker's uh, errors because they speak with confidence and it still fits within that comfortable vernacular. Whereas when a foreign speaker makes a mistake, it'll often stand out a bit more. So for, the, for Greek vernacular, this actually works. It doesn't have to agree perfectly. Uh, <clears throat> in order to actually be referring to that previous thing. So this whose is plural, and it could be referring then to those who are dwelling, those dwelling people. So those are two plurals, and then this name doesn't have to be a plural. Uh, this whose could have been a singular to refer to this name, but it's probably attracting that plurality from those who dwell on the earth. I think that's what's happening. And then that book of life, uh, it says it is the Lamb's book of life who has been slain. And I think John's not repeating himself and saying the Lamb's book of life again. Here he calls it the book of life, and then he qualifies that of the Lamb who has been slain. When he gets to chapter 17, this isn't a different book of life, but he's not saying, calling it the Lamb's book of life because we know that already, back from chapter 13. So it's not a book of everyone who's ever been born, 
it's a book of everyone who's ever been born spiritually, everyone who's ever been written in the book of life of the Lamb. His life given, or at the moment, his life is given to someone, their name is written in his book. In John 5.24, we, <clears throat> we see that uh, Jesus, or John records Jesus' words saying, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word, that's the gospel, what he's promising, and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but he has passed out of death and into life. And I think that's the book of life of the lamb who was slain because by his death, he purchased life for us. By his resurrection life, we are written in now his book. Those who dwell on the earth who are worshiping the beast, their name has never been written in this book because they have never believed. To Sardis, Jesus promises that he who overcomes, and we saw from 1 John 5, 4, way back when, when we were doing the churches, that he who overcomes, overcomes by faith. He who believes in Jesus has overcome. So he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, this is a uh, positive promise, not a negative inferential threat. He is not saying, if you do this, I won't erase your name. But if you don't do this, I will. That's nowhere in here. This is a guarantee. He is saying it for emphasis that you will not be erased from this book. The opposite is not to be taken as uh, equally true. Just because he says it won't be erased doesn't mean it could be erased. He is making them a positive promise. So then if we go back and look at this, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. Those dwelling on the earth will be astonished whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast and he who is and is not and will come. When the people who dwell on the earth who have never believed in Jesus and so have never had their name written in the book of life that comes from his life, when they see this resurrection, the one who was not, who is, and, or who isn't and is about to come, when they see this resurrection, they're going to follow after him and say, wow, look at him. Imagine that, um, a resurrection. They're going to follow after him then. So <clears throat> when we look back at Revelation 13, 3, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and a fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. We're getting more detail about what happened back here in chapter 13 at the midpoint of the tribulation. They saw this resurrection. They were amazed by the beast. And so they worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with the beast. So those who worship Jesus and his resurrection are recognizing his eternality his eternal life that he offers to us they see the beast and say he can't be killed that's equal or that's equated to eternal life so it's a mimicry of eternal life as well this invincibility of the beast and so they're going to worship him and say who can wage war with him he can't be killed 